you know, it used to be that officers had to, like, sit in, like, you know, hot cars, drinking cold coffee, watching the suspect go from place to place to place, and that was time-consuming, painful, and, you know, made some movies out of it, but, like, not that fun. If you could sit back in your office and subpoena as the guy left his smart house to his, through his smart car with OnStar systems that knows exactly where you are and watches from his smartphone and his Fitbit or where he was going, it's an incredible, you know, surveillance resource. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I sit down with Andrew Ferguson, the author of a new book called The Rise of Big Data Policing. You get the sense from our conversation that big data is definitely coming, but boy, are there some really interesting legal, cultural, and ethical questions that are going to come up. It's cliche to invoke the movie The Minority Report when talking about this subject, but if you liked that movie or it hurt your brain, I think you'll really like this conversation. We'll talk about predictive policing, reasonable suspicion, Carpenter, which is a major case in front of the Supreme Court this term, and ultimately the future of quantifying justice more broadly. I love this conversation because you can really nerd out on the legal issues, but there are also some really fundamental questions about surveillance and racism. I know there are a number of ways that big data is being used uh, in policing. So let's start with how big data is being used to predict crime. So the idea is that certain crimes are uh, um, almost contagious, sort of viral, right? So certain crimes like burglary, car theft, and theft from auto. And you say, well, why? Well, most houses in certain neighborhoods are built the same. Uh, so if a burglar can break into one house and there's sort of environmental factors that seem to be like there's no police presence, say that one was easy, either that same burglar actually goes back uh, until they're caught or their friends and word on the street gets there. And so there actually is sort of a, a long-standing sociological study and studies that show that certain kinds of crimes are almost contagious and that if there's one crime in particular, there may be more crimes in other areas. Some, are, some of the theories are more complex. So for example, there's a uh, type of predictive policing uh, technology called risk terrain modeling that just had its sort of, uh, it's not its debut, but it got a lot of news out of uh, Atlantic City. And they basically said, look, if you look at three factors, abandoned lots, convenience stores, and laundromats. We can use those factors to predict where there'll be an increase in crime. And everyone was sort of like in disbelief. Like, that's, what are you talking about? Those things don't have any correlation. It doesn't make sense. But they studied sort of the risk narrative. They said, you know what happens? If you want to go buy drugs, you go to the place that's safe to go, because anyone can go to a convenience store, and you find out, hey, where's the drug dealing going down? And they send you to the laundromat, where you give them their money, and then they say, hey, go to the abandoned lot to get your drugs. And that's where they either get robbed or shot or violence happens. And they were able to sort of describe the risk narrative. And when they told the Atlantic City police about it, they are like, we don't believe you. And they showed them the numbers, and they showed them the data, and they were saying, actually, this is the pattern that's going on. So if you fix that environmental risk, if you fix that abandoned lot, maybe put up lights, put up new police barriers or something there, you can actually change some of the patterns. They're able to show that the predictions that they predicted were not the same predictions that the officers on the street had and were actually more accurate. So that's a, that's a, that's a good example. Mm -hmm. um, some of the other uh, sort of violence predictions are you know, not rocket science, right? There are certain bars and clubs probably in Cambridge that ha always have certain violent actions you know, every Saturday night or Friday night or Thursday night, depending on how hard you guys party. But like, that is you know, a reality of, uh, of you, know, you don't need big data to figure that out, but you actually can also start tracking patterns. And one of the realities sort of in this place-based prediction is that it's simply augmenting what police are already doing. They have to go patrol somewhere, but giving them better insights about where to go, when to go, and what to do. 
So that's a, a promising. Yeah, There's some potential downsides, right? It certainly changes how officers see their areas. It may change reasonable suspicion on the streets because now they know they're going to a high crime area. And the Supreme Court has said that a high crime area can have an impact on Fourth Amendment freedoms. Um, but again, if all you're talking about is how you're changing patrol patterns, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's just you know smarter policing. Uh, there's also predictive technologies that are being used where they're uh, uh, trying to predict who the people who might be violent are, right? So in Chicago, there's something called the heat list. That's an algorithmically driven list of people who Chicago Police Department thinks will be violent or be the victims of violence uh, in the coming future. And those people, those individuals, get a knock on the door or they get summoned to a community meeting and they basically get to go face-to-face -face with a police officer and maybe a social worker and maybe someone from the community to say, look, we know you're on the wrong path. If you screw up again, we're going to bring down the hammer. Um, and so there's a form of surveillance, of social control, possibly an effort for social services. On one hand, you can think of it as a public health approach to, to violence. On another hand, you can sort of think of it as like a virtual must-wanted list. Um, and it all depends on how it gets implemented in Chicago. You know, I think the, the jury is still out about how it's being implemented. In New Orleans, aren't they taking, you know, New Orleans maybe being the foil to that, which is the they're taking a distinctly public health approach. Is so, that correct? So the difference between Chicago and New Orleans, at least in the, in, in the beginning, was that New Orleans funded the social service program. So they, they did some of the same analytics. They partnered with Palantir to try to find out the sort of 1% of the population who's most at risk of violence. They identified those people, about 3,000 people out of like, you know, 360,000 people in uh, New Orleans. Uh, but they also did some good funding of sort of violence interventions. They actually, um, with Palantir, looked at some of the social services data that they had, not just policing data, mm -hmm. but sort of tried to track where things were, where, where the violence was happening. And they noticed, obviously, sometimes right after school at a certain time, there might be violence because people are leaving school and stuff can, can erupt. Uh, so they stationed uh, officers there. They also, uh, like, fixed up the fire stations. They fixed up some of the public health, uh, like the lighting and other things in these places that they thought would be more at risk. And they had an initial real success where they were able to bring down the shooting rates. They also arrested a lot of people, i got to say. So there's always this you know, incarceration uh, uh, hammer that is there. Um, so they were able to sort of you know, do some mass arrests. And they also did some social services. And initially, they brought down the shooting rate, which was a you know, crazy, you know, horrible, you know, daily couple shootings a day kind of situation. So those all sound promising, but there does seem to be this flip side of it, which you've touched on a, a couple times, which is this idea of a like a virtual most wanted list based on data that we don't necessarily know what's going into it. Isn't that right? Right. So I, I mean, I wrote this book to say, look, we need to be paying attention to um, how law enforcement is changing because of these new technologies. But we also have to recognize there's some real problems. And mm -hmm. I, I sort of frame it in the book as sort of like the problem of black data. I say all big data policing has a black data problem. And black data meaning three things, sort of a, a problem of transparency. You can't see into the black box. It's secret. We don't know the algorithm in Chicago. They won't tell us. Uh, and the real problem is that black is racially encoded. So a lot of this data that's coming in is actually also um, coming from ordinary police officers. And we know in certain jurisdictions, Chicago being one of them, Baltimore being another, Ferguson being another, which we just had DOJ reports on, um, that there's racial problems, implicit, explicit bias that's, that's policing. And so if that data becomes part of the system, you are sort of just reifying the numbers and you're sort of encoding this sort of you know, racial bias in your numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also a constitutional problem, right? There's a, these um, uh, algorithmic decisions are actually impacting what police do, how courts review those decisions, uh, how police use their use of force when they're going to interact with someone they know is quote unquote, you know, on the higher risk level. 
Um, and all those change policing in a way that we aren't really paying attention to. So the book is hopefully, you know, a warning in some ways to say we're at the beginning of it. This is the rise of big data policing. And if we don't start paying attention now, we're going to be in a situation where a lot of these technologies have taken over and are changing police, and we haven't been paying attention, and we need to start paying attention. So let's break it down to sort of be as concrete as possible because we are sort of on the frontier of this. So we talked a little bit about um, predictive policing, mm -hmm. right, place-based pr predictive policing and predictive policing around who will perpetrate crimes. Um, what are some of the other ways that big data is being used in policing? So we have, like, surveillance, right, new surveillance. Like in New York City, downtown Manhattan, they have the um, – the domain awareness system, it's 9,000 linked surveillance cameras feeding back to a central command center where you can watch in real time people walk block to block, you know, street to street. Every time a car goes in there, the automated license plate reader picks up the car, who it is, you know, who owns that car, what they're doing there. They have automated prompts, so if they see suspicious activity, like the computer itself uh, sees it, so if someone puts down a bag and they walk away, the camera, like, pans to it to see if it's, you know, a tourist being forgetful or a terrorist being dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of these technologies are surveilling everyone who's walking in lower Manhattan right now. Um, and that's a, a big change. All of it's being collected and, and kept for a month so they can roll back the time uh, mm -hmm. time machine to be able to see um, the patterns of crime, the patterns so they want to um, be able to pick out like all the red hats that this is, they can go in time and place and find everyone who ever was wearing a red hat um, at a particular time. And that's like one of these surveillance technologies. The, the, one of the, you asked what, the most frightening one. The most frightening one that I've read about recently has not fully been adopted by police yet, but uh, in Baltimore and in Compton, California, a private company called the Persistent Surveillance System is flying Cessna planes with incredible camera capabilities such that they can film the entire city or part of a city, like all of West Baltimore, in real time for a long period of time. And then they listen to the radio runs, right? So police are recording you know, crimes going on, and they can match up the radio runs with what they're seeing from above. And so you have essentially a time machine where you can go back. There's a bank robbery. You can literally go watch the bank robbers get out of the bank, get into their car, drive, you know, ditch that car, get into the other car, and then end up at their mom's house, or wherever they're supposed to end up, and you can watch the whole thing. And they would actually watch this, put them together, wrap it all up, and hand it over to Baltimore PD and say, here you go, in the hopes no doubt, of getting a, a contract. And the worst part is they hadn't told anyone. They hadn't told the city council about it. And it wasn't until Bloomberg News blew the whistle on them that anyone actually was aware of this incredibly invasive, privacy-invasive surveillance technology mm -hmm. that could watch entire cities at a time. And we have that technology. We can do it with drones. We can do it with these Cessna planes that can stay above. Um, there have been uh, uh, moments in Baltimore history and other histories where the same kind of surveillance was being used on the people protesting the Freddie Gray uh, uh, killing and that those kinds of, of, of public protests were being watched in real time with real surveillance. And so these aren't hypotheticals. They're real. And yeah. they haven't spread everywhere, but they certainly uh, exist and the technology exists. And it's changing, you know, we don't have an answer, a Fourth Amendment answer to what happens when the police can see everything you do from above for days on end. We just right. don't know the answer to that yet. So to be, I mean, you've, obviously there's the question of we just aren't having a conversation about it and we, there's not much oversight in a lot of situations of sort of police departments implementing these new technologies without sort of citizen awareness. But just to be really explicit about it, you know, these enhanced surveillance technologies are problematic for privacy reasons which can feel kind of nebulous. Can you just explain what is bad about having a plane monitoring the activities of an entire city at all times? 
I think it chills association. I think it chills, you know, people wanting to go out and maybe protest, but don't want the government knowing they're out there protesting. Um, it chills, you know, the freedom to for people to go to particular places. Maybe you'll choose not to go to a health clinic. Maybe you'll choose not to go to um, a mosque. Maybe you'll choose not to go to uh, visit, you know, your, I don't know, illicit girlfriend or whatever. You know, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but it's this monitoring thing, this idea that you are being watched by, you know, an entity, maybe your government, and that chills how we act. And so... It may be the case that society says we're okay with that, but we're not even having that debate. And that's part of what, what I'm trying to show is that you know, each of these technologies that I've discussed are, have been piloted somewhere in America. They're not all anywhere yet. Um, but because policing is sort of fragmented in America and built because sort of the process of procuring this technology is sort of ad hoc, no one has sort of put it all together and say, look, this is the time for the conversation. Like, the city of Baltimore should have that conversation if they want to do this. Um, it shouldn't be done by a private contractor trying to get a public contract, right? Um, those entities in those cities that have done that have actually been quite successful. Like, the domain awareness system is not a secret. Everyone knows that in lower Manhattan this is happening. And people are okay with it. So if you're having that debate and people are okay with it, okay, that's people sort of giving up this privacy uh, right. Interesting about the Chicago heat list. So the Chicago heat list, which was the, in, the identification of people at risk, began with like um, a small group of people, like 400 people that were, were targeting. But recognizing, I think, that they were going to get some pushback, they've started giving heat scores, threat scores, to everyone arrested in Chicago. So if you've been arrested for four, the last four years in Chicago, you have a heat score. It may not be that high. It may not get you into the place where they're going to come knock on your door. But you literally have a, a score. So if the the, the cop runs your name in the computer program, like on the, there's a little dashboard score of your name and your number, and they know like how threatening you are, how potentially you know, at risk for violence you, you are. And like that might be troubling to people that the government has literally scored you. Like yeah. we just haven't had that yet. And maybe like, oh, that's fine. It's like a credit score. We all you know, have to live with those and we don't know it. Because those but, are perfect. Right, right. Because <laughs> no one ever makes <laughs> a mistake there. problems there. there. Right? Yeah. Um, and so this is some of the change. And people haven't had this conversation because it's, it really is just evolving. It you know, takes place in sort of the policing space, which is sort of a, a relatively non-transparent space. Uh, and for the most part, you know, law enforcement themselves are just kind of catching up with it. Like they're getting the technology. They're implementing it. Many of them haven't fully thought through all the consequences of it. Um, and that's the conversation we need to have. But in order to have it, we, we have to be educated about it. People have to understand that this is a problem and this is something um, that um, we all, you know, not just lawyers, not just technologists, not just civil libertarians, not just police, but everyone needs to uh, be involved in. And it's interesting. Um, was it in Chicago where the, uh, like a police, a member of the police department found out that his own son yeah, was on the heat right. list? There is a, a question because most of these um, technologies are provided by private companies. Is that right? Or developed and For the and, most part. And so contracts. Chicago's heat list was actually created by a bunch of academics at Chicago ITT based on some mm -hmm. theories of, of sociologists who recognize that there are risk factors that create violence. Um, and so that's been done in, in, in sort of partnership. But a lot of the other companies or a lot of the other technologies are private companies, usually actually startup companies, pretty small companies that are selling their goods and services to police. You know, in a competitive enterprise, it's actually sort of a race to see who gets to be the dominant mm -hmm. player in predictive policing. Uh, and many of those companies don't really want to be fully transparent because it's sort of in their competitive advantage not to be. Right. But it's alarming because, you know, there's very little, they're incentivized to keep that information private and, and these it's scary to have people scored anyway, but it's more scary to have it scored by people 
whose inputs you have no idea what they right. are. And right? you can't check. And they keep changing. The funny thing about the, the, the system, especially in Chicago, is that you know, they keep changing the inputs. So it used to be that it was just about co-arrests, like people you were arrested with, thinking that, look, you know, if people, if, if we're really talking about sort of cycles of violence, like someone, you know, shoots your friend, and the response is, you're going to go shoot that person back, because that's the way it works on the street. And then these gangs are warring, so we know that they're going to be shooting. So it made sense, like, to know, if you can figure out the social networks, you can figure out the people who are most at risk to either shoot someone or be shot. And they changed that a little bit. They said, oh, maybe that's not the best one. Maybe gangs. Why gangs? The gangs are a real problem in Chicago. And then they realized there's no way to define gangs because no one knows what a gang is. There's no auditing of gangs. And it's really hard to know if a young guy growing up in a particular area is in a gang or not. Um, but every time there have, there's been tri like an audit of sorts, um, the response has always been, hey, well, that's not the system we're using anymore. We've changed the inputs. And on one hand, that's not illegitimate because you know, in any modeling system of data, like, you're supposed to change the model. In fact, some models are created that they constantly change because maybe you can get better information. So it's not a, a negative necessarily, but it makes it hard to figure out if any of these work and to judge it if any of them work um, because you have a constantly evolving change. Yeah. And I, it's also just striking if, if, in fact, this data is coming, is being analyzed by third parties and... Um, in, in, in some cases generated by third parties, right? Uh, most of the big data out there is being mined by, you know, places like Google and, <clears throat> and we're just handing over that information. Does that present any sort of thorniness, I guess, because it's the government is in some ways getting data from people who have less accountability? So, you know, there, so there's a lot wrapped up in that question, right? So the issue of third party data collectors, like private collectors, that are not in a contract with the government um, is an open one, right? So people who decide to have like smart watches and are wearing <laughs> Fitbits. Looking at my Fitbit, yeah. Um, that tell you your heartbeat and yeah. how healthy you are. Like you're giving that data away to people, right? And so let's say you were involved in a criminal act, either as a victim or some a perpetrator, that information would be incredibly valuable, right? They'd know if your heartbeat spiked at the moment you stabbed that person, right? Or if your alibi was why well, I wasn't there and the Fitbit can locate where you were, incredibly valuable information, right? And so there's a question of how easy should it be to get access to that information? Does the government need a warrant to get it? Um, and that case or a similar type of case is before the Supreme Court this term called Carpenter involving cell site location. Um, and the reason why it's sort of a big deal for Fourth Amendment nerds uh, is the Carpenter case could open the door, depending on how the court rules on third-party records, to um, request by the government without a warrant to all this kind of very personal, very, you know, um, you know revealing data about us. What, just for, for purposes of the podcast, what is the question presented in, or what's the situation right, right. in Carpenter? So Timothy Carpenter uh, ironically decided to rob a series of cell phone stores with his cell phone in his pocket. His cell phone, which revealed his location at those robbed stores. So the government, after getting a confession by one of his co-conspirators, co essentially went to the service providers of like Metro's uh, PCS and Sprint, I think, and said, hey, can we have the locational data of Timothy Carpenter for these particular times and these things because we think it's going to link him to um, the crime? They had there's a, the, a warrant or they had a, a, a subpoena under the Stored Communications Act, not a Fourth Amendment warrant. And lo and behold, it showed that, yeah, Timothy Carpenter was in the, the areas at the right time. If you know how your cell phone works, um, right now, you're, if your cell phone's on, even if you're not using it, it's communicating with cell towers around. And if you triangulate those cell towers, it can find out in a pretty, you know, within sort of a couple blocks, uh, certainly in an urban area, where you are. 
Uh, and that data was used against Carpenter in trial. He was convicted, and, and he uh, appealed, saying, look, I had an expectation of privacy in these third-party records owned by um, or held by the, the um, phone companies, um, and the, the police getting of them without a warrant violated my Fourth Amendment rights. The government response says, you don't have any Fourth Amendment expectation of privacy in, like, cell tower data. You didn't even know it was you, probably how it worked. Um, and the idea that, you know, Sprint PCS or Metro PCS can't um, do what they want with their data has nothing to do with you. Maybe they have a Fourth Amendment issue, but you don't. And so that's the issue before the court about whether the Fourth Amendment should uh, cover that. On one hand, a narrow reading of the third-party doctrine, which basically says if you give your information to a third party, you lose your expectation of privacy, like you give your information to a bank and the bank turns over the government, you can't really claim that you have any expectation of privacy, um, might just be the fact that Timothy Carpenter loses and that, that, that there's no expectation of privacy. But the consequence of that means that everyone's Fitbit and everyone's like smartphone and your Google searches of you know, personal things and all of those things uh, would be open to law enforcement requests without any Fourth Amendment protection. Now, you could have legislative protection, you could have other kinds of protections, but there wouldn't be any Fourth Amendment protection if the court um, goes the way of the government and Carpenter. And, you know, the companies recognize that. I mean, they realize that it was not necessarily in their best interest to have, you know, revealing, you know, little snitches on your wrist um, everywhere you go. Um, but they also are sort of stuck in this sort of our old-fashioned law, traditional law that, you know, came about in the 70s. It's a, the precedent we're dealing with. Um, I should say, full disclosure, I wrote an amicus brief in Carpenter on behalf of some criminal professors saying that they should get a warrant. So that's my, my stake, and you can write, read about it. Um, but the, you know, the issue is big, and the issue opens up because in some ways, like, you know, do you have an expectation of privacy in the data you're giving to, your, to Nike and to the rest of the companies that have that? You probably think you do, right? But, you know, what's the contract you sign that, you know, allows you to keep that? What's the, you know, limitations that they can't sell, you know, the valuable information about, you know, where do Harvard Law School students, like, go and shop? That's actually really valuable data um, because it's a demographic that people want to target. And so there's a real question about, you know, is the difference, you know, you don't really have a question if, like, Nike sells that data to, like, advertisers. You're really not in a position. Is it different that they sell it to police? Why should police be sort of more limited than the people trying to sell you T-shirts or whatever? Uh, and these are the open questions that this kind of new data trail and data surveillance um, raises. For law enforcement, you can imagine that in a world where you don't need a warrant, you know, it used to be that officers had to like sit in like, you know, hot cars drinking cold coffee watching the suspect go from place to place to place, and that was time-consuming, painful, and you know, made some movies out of it, but like not that fun. If you could sit back in your office and subpoena as the guy left his smart house to his, through his smart car with OnStar systems that knows exactly where you are and watch it from his smartphone and his Fitbit or where he was going, it's an incredible, you know, surveillance resource. Um, and that's in some way some of the questions that the court has to answer, although that's not the actual question presented in Carpenter. So that's the sort of immediate prospect for the possibility of changing fourth party or third party doctrine under the Fourth Amendment. But um, from your book and from an article you wrote in the Penn Law Review before this, it sounds like there's quite a lot of potential for the Fourth Amendment to change sort of fundamentally after, um, after the sort of rise of big data policing. So I thought we could talk about the Fourth Amendment for a little bit, which I know is it gets very wonky very fast. Um, so I thought an interesting way to do this, which is why I was running off to print something, might be to have you read this, um, this paragraph of what a modern-day 
Terry versus Ohio would look like from your Penn Law Review article? Because I really liked Terry versus Ohio is like this foundational Fourth Amendment case, and you reframe it as to what it would look like, what Terry v. Ohio would look like today. Um, so would that be okay with you? If I sure. Um, do you want to start off by just describing? Sure. So the background of Terry v. Ohio is 1969. It's Cleveland, Ohio, and Detective McFadden is on patrol. He's a pretty experienced police officer, and he sees um, John Terry uh, and two compatriots sort of walk past this, uh, I think it's sort of like a jewelry store. And they walk past once, and they sort of disappear, and then they walk past again. And it keeps happening, right? Sort of in Detective McFadden's uh, view, uh, it uh, looks like they're casing the joint, that they're going to rob it. He doesn't know John Terry, doesn't have any other information but his observational data of what he can see. But for him, that's good enough. He stops John Terry, he uh, searches them, and incident to that search, he recovers a gun. They never actually find out whether or not there's to be a robbery. They don't really know, but they recover a gun. That's uh, a crime, and so he, uh, Terry's arrested. He moves to suppress the evidence, the gun, on Fourth Amendment grounds because at the time, um, the standard was probable cause. That's the, the language in the, in the Constitution. You have to, in the Fourth Amendment, you have to have probable cause. And it was pretty clear that McFadden didn't have probable cause of what? What are you going to do? He thought it was suspicious, but not enough. And so the court is uh, uh, forced to address sort of policing stops on the street, um, and whether a new Fourth Amendment standard needs to sort of be crafted, created, is what judges do, um, to respond to this problem. And they do. In Terry v. Ohio, they create the reasonable suspicion standard, which says that police officers are allowed to stop individuals on the street if they have reasonable suspicion defined as specific and articulable facts um, that taken with rational inference of those facts warrant the belief that criminal activity is afoot. Um, so and, that's as, as opposed to a probable cause standard. That, right, which would be higher. Cause that a, a, a crime has occurred, taking right? Place. Yeah. And so that justification allows them to seize an individual, and if they believe the person is armed and dangerous, then to frisk that individual for a weapon. Um, and that's what the standard was. And that's what actually the court determined, right? And the thing about Terry, which has spawned like tens of thousands of cases, uh, is that it has given police incredible discretion to stop individuals on the street, Sometimes that discretion is informed by implicit and explicit bias. Sometimes it's informed by, you know, requirements that they, you know, contact enough people. Sometimes it's, you know, informed by um, the requirements that they, uh, you know, have quota systems in some places, right? And so you have situations in Manhattan at the height of stop and frisk where 700,000 people almost were being stopped by police in a year. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of information that all comes from this particular case. And so in the um, article you reference. I say, well, how would big data change this? If, you know, McFadden, instead of having just a small data observational information, had big data, had an ability to, you know, with facial recognition technology, be able to figure out who John Terry was mm -hmm. and how it might change it. And so let me read this. So this is from this Penn uh, Law Review journal called Big Data and Predictive Reasonable Suspicion. It says, consider a modern-day Terry v. Ohio situation. Detective McFadden is patrolling the street. He observes John Terry and, using facial recognition technology, identifies him and begins to investigate using big data. Detective McFadden learns through a database search that Terry has a prior criminal record, including a couple of convictions and a number of arrests. McFadden learns through pattern-matching links that Terry is an associate, a hanger-on, of a notorious violent local gangster, Billy Cox, who had been charged with several murders. McFadden also learns that Terry has a substance abuse problem and is addicted to drugs. These facts, all true, but unknown to the real Detective McFadden at the time, are individualized and particularized to Terry. 
alone, they may not constitute reasonable suspicion that Terry is committing or about to commit a particular crime. But in conjunction with Terry's observed actions of pacing outside a store with two associates, the information makes the reasonable suspicion finding easier and more likely and, and likely more reliable. So reasonable suspicion is already a very low standard. So what does it mean if you're introducing all of this extra data? Does this mean that cops can basically find reasonable suspicion? They just have so much more information with which to find reasonable suspicion. Does that mean that there's just going to be that much more reasonable suspicion proliferating out in the world? I think it, it, it lowers the already low threshold of reasonable suspicion, allowing police to uh, make stops that they want to make. Um, and I, So I think that's a problem and, a, and a, a restriction on the Fourth Amendment. I will say, and I always found this fascinating when I presented this paper in my book, um, that sometimes I'll be presenting and, you know, there'll be, you know, my favorite example is like a very senior civil rights litigator, African-American man, of the, you know, probably in his late 60s, said, this is a terrific idea. You know, if this uh, happened in my lifetime, I wouldn't have been stopped and harassed on a daily basis. People would have seen me as, you know, a hero, a lawyer, a professor, and not a risk because of the color of my skin. I think this is terrific. It identifies the people who should be identified and not identifies the people who shouldn't be. And I, I was sort of taken aback by that. You know, I think it's a, a valuable and, and valid uh, statement. Um, but it's interesting, right? It changes sort of the, the focus of, like, is this more accurate and is that accuracy good? Does that mean that people who've already been caught up in the system will be always labeled? So once you have, you know, an arrest record, a criminal arrest record, they'll basically be able to justify re- stopping you for any reason. Uh, and if that isn't already happening and may be happening in certain jurisdictions, um, it would allow it to happen easier, and that's a problem. I think that's a fantastic point because in, in Terry, one of the sort of unwritten parts of the case, wasn't it that part of the suspicion came from the fact that there were two white men and an African-American man. And cops at the time thought that black and white folks only sort of commingle when they're about to commit a crime. And so that's a great example of if we were grounded in more data, uh, maybe those types of biases wouldn't be allowed to play as big of a role. Right. I mean, it might remove some of the bias. I mean, again, like, you know, that fact about the racial dynamics in Cleveland at the time, never mentioned in the casebook. I didn't learn that when I was t- t- taking Crim Pro. Um, but it's real. And, and, it, and it shows how um, there are lots of sort of uh, information sources that police are using for their discretion that don't get captured necessarily in the data. Um, and that the, we, in some ways, are always having a false debate where we're talking about you know, high crime areas when really that may not be the reason why the police officer stopped someone, but they need to justify it. And the Supreme Court is a reasonable suspicion through a high crime area mattered. So we'll put the, the checkbox in. There's a, a new paper coming out by Jeff Fagan at Columbia uh, where he sort of looks at the high crime area label in these New York stop and frisk uh, cases and basically shows that they don't correlate with better suspicion. In fact, they correlate with worse suspicion, which probably means they were just justifications after the fact, um, knowing that that was a quote-unquote legitimate justification, and people checked the box even though it didn't actually change their analysis or what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that there's this, this sort of theory that in one way or another, we're all criminals, right? We all do illegal stuff on a regular basis, and that may offend some folks, but stop and think about all the random things that you can be jaywalking, for example, is something that I do illegally on a regular basis. Um, And so the question is, if there's reasonable suspicion everywhere, uh, or there's much more reasonable suspicion, the question ends up being, where are we going to target our resources to police? And we kind of end up in the same place then that we are already, which is like police focusing their resources and attention on particular communities and ending up with disparate Right. And, and why it's even more dangerous is that it sort of gets, like, justified because it's the data. Like, oh, we're just following the data. We, we're, we're not, you know, looking at 
um, risk, you know, based on race or class anymore. We're just following the data. The data gave us these scores. And again, you know, you think about Chicago, like there are lots of drugs being used in Chicago that never make it to a, you know, police database. So a lot of crime, sexual assault, domestic violence, never make into these data sets. Uh, and so lots of people who are using drugs and using and, and being violent and committing horrible crimes aren't ever going to be linked and, and, and thus given a higher level of uh, risk and aren't going to make it into the dashboard score. Um, and so you're sort of creating a, you know, potentially false narrative that seems more objective, but may just be a misleading sort of, you know, group of facts that uh, is, uh, you know, distorting the data rather than really revealing it. So this brings me to the question of, of how data can be racist and how um, big data policing and the use of data in our criminal justice system can be very dangerous in, in reinforcing existing racial disparities. So you touched on one thing just now, which is that it can be used to justify existing, you know, um, racist practices. Um, and you mentioned earlier, but I, I wonder if you could elaborate on the idea that um, data can actually reify racism. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Chicago, right, so the, the modern inputs, so the, the new way that they create the heat list is the following factors. They look at your um, arrests for violent crimes, uh, weapons offenses, or narcotics, they look at whether you've been a victim of a shooting or other violent assault. They look at your age of your last arrest. The lower the age, the higher the risk. And they look at the trend line. Is this going up or down? Um, and with those inputs, they come up with their risk factors that um, get you know, crunched into a number. Um, but some of those factors involve police discretion, right? We know arrests are based on discretion. So if you have a police department like Chicago, which, you know, in 2017, um, the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division investigated and said, oh, look, there's problems of endemic, systemic, you know, serious racism on this force. Um, and you know that police are going to use their discretion and some of that bias might filter through the, the arrest records uh, and the arrest decisions, then if you're using arrests, you may very well be reifying the racial bias in your policing system. Um, there are um, companies, not on the person side, but in the police space, who won't use arrests in their predictive policing. They basically say, look, predictive policing based on arrests is just you know, predicting where police will go. It's just self-fulfilling where the police have been, where they'll go again. We only look at calls for service. So we need a victim to call us and say, my house was burglarized, my car was stolen. And generally speaking, while there are definitely cases where that doesn't happen, people don't report, um, because of insurance incentives and other incentives, people do report those. And so if those become your data points, you're on more solid footing that you're responding to victim complaints as opposed to um, where police patterns are. Although you might run into the issue where, like a lot of communities of color or communities that have had historically bad relationship with, relationships with the police have lower crime reporting uh, statistics just because there's such a you know, lack of trust there. So might you no, end that, up in That's true, but it also, if you think about the data, then that means that the predictive policing patrols wouldn't necessarily skew toward low-income communities or, or communities yeah. of color. It might actually skew toward sort of wealthier right. companies, uh, communities, and maybe that's good for policing for them. Yeah. Um, but you don't can't be accused of the same sort of race right. bias, right? It becomes the opposite problem right. where you're not getting enough right. uh, resources right. in policing. Yeah. Right. Okay, so what's next on the horizon for you? What are you going to be working on next? The pitch in the next book is that essentially all of this kind of sort of quantifying justice from like risk assessments to... Um, you know, how do you judge a good lawyer? How do you know what a good lawyer is, right? Yeah. How do you know 
who prosecutors are targeting and what's the data that we trust to do that. You know, you know, big data understands where people live in a better way than jury commissioners do. Like we have a randomized, you know, jury thing. Like we actually could get a perfectly representative jury sample by using big data <laughs> if we wanted to, mm-hmm. but it changes what juries do, right? It changes your image of what a jury is, and that could be good or bad. And so um, the the bookstore says, you know, one of the things that data will do is expose all of the problems. It actually almost will delegitimize the criminal justice system. If you actually see what defenders are doing in other states, not the Bronx or D.C., but other places where they have too many cases and not doing any work, people say, this is outrageous. This can't happen. But it also might give you the tools to fix it. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether we want to see it. One of the things about data is it's just sort of like the reality is reality. It's always been there, but data allows you to visualize it in a different way. It's like Floyd. I was yeah. really, I was, when yeah. I was reading your book, because I grew up in New York City and then have been away for a long time. And so I wasn't really there for the, um, the when stop and frisk sort of had its you moment would have been in a the political target, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, so I have to say I didn't experience it, but I also wasn't there when it was in, the, in public discussion as much. But I was struck when, I, you know, ultimately the, when it was struck down by the Second Circuit, um, I was struck by the... the the fact that the data was actually incredibly helpful in getting this invalidated because it was just so blatantly ineffective, right? right? It was like like one percent of people right. who are stopped do they ever find anything on them. Right. So um, there is really an inc- you know it, there's an incredible power in data, right. but it's just scary. And, and you also have to collect it, right? The only reason we have that data in Floyd, which has spawned a ton of articles and a ton of sort of change, is because there's a federal consent degree that they had to keep it. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the only reason we know it. They didn't want to keep it. They were forced to keep it. And once they kept it, we were able to show that, oh, look, there's some problems in keeping it. Um, but most you know, jurisdictions don't have to keep it. There's some fascinating studies in, uh, that I mentioned in the book, like in, in Stanford in Oakland, um, where the Oakland PD is also under federal consent degree, and some researchers from Stanford, Jennifer Eberhardt and other people, um, went in and studied the patterns of policing in Oakland and found racial disparities from the use of handcuffs, who gets arrested, who gets stopped, everything like that, but then really went down and said, look, we can study the... Um, uh, the voice, the audio from body cams, and we can see how officers are talking to individuals of different races. And we even can predict, based on our uh, study, whether the officer is talking to a black person or a white person because of the terms they use, the, 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 the sort of respectfulness, the apologies, all these things. And that kind of data crunching is really fascinating because it can actually improve um, accountability. It can improve uh, you know, police training. Um, the article that I have written that I will be submitting in the spring uh, for all those people listening who would like to, a great article is about how you can sort of turn the architecture of surveillance we've built uh, on police, right? So we actually have predictive capabilities to be able to predict officers who might be violent. We actually have surveillance cameras watching the police as much as watching other people. And if we actually had the will to turn that on um, the officers, we actually really could get changed. And if you believe that the exclusionary rule has changed under Chief Justice Roberts and you have to show systemic and recurring patterns of, of problems before you suppress evidence, there's actually now a legal hook to actually uh, uh, introduce this evidence, which there probably wasn't before. And so the article kind of plays out how using this new doctrine and this new technology, you might be able to change uh, policing and build accountability. And then the final piece of it is like, we know that may not actually happen because of the political realities, 
but there are actually real lessons from the resistance. Like if you, the reveal of re resistance of how police will respond to this idea of, wait, what? You're going to predict that I'm going to be violent, but I haven't done anything yet. You're going to predict that I'm going to be a troublemaker? Like, they actually get empathy. They like, go, oh, that would be unfair for his employment context. And you're like, but that's exactly what we're doing with lots of people. People's liberty uh, right. interests, right? Not just employment interests. But, but there's a lesson there, right? That, that it, it's obviously hypocritical, but there's also a lesson in what is it about that officer saying it that people respond to that we could then use for communities to say maybe communities could use us to respond to. And maybe what we needed to start thinking about these things as systems of you know, um, uh, of policing and, sy and systemic problems. If you think of it that way, maybe you could change it uh, systemically. So that's the, the next article that is written, but just waiting for the spring submission session. <laughs> well, uh, this is a fantastic book. That sounds like a great article, and I'm looking forward to the next book. I really appreciate your taking the time to sit with me. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning into Voir Dear. Since you made it to the end of the episode, I guess you didn't hate it, and I would really love if you could take a moment to go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast, and rate and review us. It would really help to spread the word, and we'd like to get as many people caring about the criminal justice system as possible. I'd also like to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program who have supported me in making this, including Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke and want to remind everyone that the uh, opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and mine alone and do not reflect the opinions of the Criminal Justice Policy Program or Harvard Law School or University more broadly. Finally, I want to uh, thank the people at Poddington Bear for producing our theme music. <laughs>